Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Today's episode is brought to you by Phoenix Seminary. I've had several guests on the show from Phoenix Seminary in the past, including Steve Duby and John Mead. Right now, they have relaunched their online program and are offering masterclass-type experiences for students who either can't relocate to Phoenix or somewhere else, perhaps pastors, lay people who want to grow in their knowledge and understanding. Phoenix Seminary has got some options there. They have video lectures from Church History 1 with Brian Arnold and Old Testament 2 with Michael Thigpen that are available for free online at ps.edu slash online. So go check that out, phoenixseminaryps.edu slash online. Today's episode is a conversation with my friend, Trevin Wax. We reminisce about our time together in Nashville, serving on the Christian Standard Bible team for four years, as well as the Word Matters podcast that we used to work on together. We also talk about his new book, Thrill of Orthodoxy, and talk about why we should care about sound theology, how that actually affects the way that we engage the world, the way that we think about the culture around us. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Trevin. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. We're also brought to you by Cedarville University's Graduate School. I love teaching here at Cedarville University. In addition to our amazing undergrad program, we also have a great graduate school. We have some online programs you can check out, including business, innovation, leadership, ministry, nursing, and worship. We also have our residential programs, which are the bread and butter here at Cedarville. Those include athletic training, PA studies, pharmacy, and at the Master of Divinity. I have the blessing of teaching in our MDiv program. We have several different options, including the BAMDiv. It's a five-year program where you get a bachelor's in biblical studies and an MDiv. It's a rigorous five years. Really enjoy being in there. We have a great faculty together that trains students here to go out to be pastors, missionaries, and all kinds of other leaders in the church and the world around us. So please check us out at cedarville.edu slash graduate. That's cedarville.edu slash graduate. And now my conversation with Trevin Wax, but first, no big deal. friend Trevin Wax is here. Trevin, uh, we used to live around the corner from each other. We used to work across the hall from each other. And uh, now we are halfway across the country from each other. But glad you're on the podcast. Glad to, glad to be here. You were just here in Ohio. Uh, it was the last week or two weeks ago. So we got to actually hang out in person for a little bit. But yeah, I missed that opportunity to record while we were here for whatever reason. So yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's good to be on, on campus and I'll be, I'll be up there a couple times a year now. Now that yeah. my, my son's a student, so. Yeah, visiting professor, uh, heavy on the visiting uh, level That's right. of professor. <laughs> well, yeah, I, definitely higher on the visiting than the professor, but in, I, I did get to, to teach a couple classes, and yeah. it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. Well, uh, I thought what we could start by doing, we'll talk about your new book, Thrill of Orthodoxy. We'll talk about your new podcast, Reconstructing Faith. But I thought we could uh, reminisce. Um, there were It was several years ago on Twitter. I don't remember who it was or anything. I have no recollection of it other than the statement that somebody once called you and I the theological podfathers, which I thought was really fun. I can't believe someone actually called us that because I, I, I've, I've people call me the blog father, one of the blog fathers before, but the pod fathers is even that's cool. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, when we started doing Word Matters, which is still available, people can go listen to it. We haven't done one and it's, it's retired. But, um, I mean, we started recording it in 2015 and there really were yeah. a, there weren't a lot of theological podcasts yet. Um, I can think of like OnScript was already running. Uh, Preston Sprinkle was doing his, but there weren't a lot going on. So we thought, oh, this is really a cool new medium, you know, just like you probably were when you, you know, we started our blogs in the early 2000s. And uh, as it always turns out, everybody ends up having one eventually. So yeah, that, yeah, podcasting has definitely followed blogging in, in that, in that regard. But yeah, I, you know, I'm proud of what we did there. I mean, and, and it, honestly, it's a, it's a great resource. I don't know if you, uh, how often you've talked about it on Church Grammar. I haven't heard you mention it recently, but uh, it, I mean, you've, what I think it's like fifty-two, maybe fifty-four, something like uh, that. Yeah, harder to interpret Bible passages, and then you know, I'd be basically just going in there and talking about the different interpretations, and then getting really practical about how we would preach or teach the passages. Um, we had some good guests. 
sometimes there's just the two of us. But yeah, I I really, I think that content holds up and hopefully it's still really helpful to people. So yeah, I tend to tell people when I refer them back to an episode that I have the right to disagree with myself because uh, some of those were recorded like six years ago, you know, so I'm sure that there's a couple that I uh, probably disagree with myself now. But I think the I think the format and the conversation worked at least. Well, you, you talk about disagreeing with yourself. I have a hard time remembering what position I had. So <laughs> right. like someone someone will, you know, ask me about a passage and I'll be like, oh yeah, I did a podcast on that. And then I'll 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 send them the link to the podcast. And they're like, no, just tell me what you think really quick. I don't want to hear the whole podcast. I'm like, <laughs> I don't remember. That's why I sent you the <laughs> link to the podcast. You know? Well, sometimes we would record like three or four in a, and we just sit down and just plow through a bunch of them. So yeah, that's uh, right. we tried to do our research and work, but man, that's a that's a long time. We've we've slept and had kids since then, you know, or I've had kids yeah. since then. Yeah, man, um, that's right. But yeah, that was that was a fun time. And I remember we used to joke about how, you know, you worked on Gospel Project, which was a, a huge deal. Uh, you and I worked together on CSB, which was kind of the biggest project Lifeway had going when we were there. And then, uh, but we would joke about how we'd be at ETS or we'd be out somewhere at like a church or whatever it was. And we'd hear about Word Matters as much as we would about anything else we were doing. So yeah, people definitely were engaged. That was, that was, that was a fun project for sure. Yeah. So anyway, we, uh, the Theological Podfathers are back for a reunion here. That's what we're, <laughs> yeah. that's, what, that's what we'll say here. So, um, well, let's talk about Thrill of Orthodoxy because I think this is, I got to read an early copy of it, uh, really enjoyed it. I was thinking of, you know, the various ways this book could be used and certainly thoughtful lay people would be a, would be a pretty obvious pastors would be pretty obvious, but I was thinking, um, there's probably a lot of pastors who, I know there are a lot of pastors who care about church history, who are trying to figure out how do we implement the creeds? How do we implement a good theology in our church? How do we work on our liturgy and this kind of thing? And I feel like this could be one of those books where if you're a pastor who already agrees with the thesis of the book, but it's trying to figure out a way to articulate it to your church, this is a really good resource for that. So maybe talk through a little bit. Uh, you've been in pastoral ministry. You've thought through all this stuff as a leader. Um, in what ways are you trying to sort of encourage the church to start thinking about orthodoxy? And maybe you can even start with what orthodoxy is to you and then move on from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, that the question of what orthodoxy is to me is is actually really a bad question because the whole <laughs> point of the book is that it's not my orthodoxy or your orthodoxy. It's, you know, the Christian faith, the the great tradition, what the Bible teaches, and how it's been summed up in the in, in the creeds. Uh, yeah, you in, like in, how I threw that I threw that softball there, so you could swing at it. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if that was intentional or if you're just covering it up really good right now. <laughs> no, it was intentional. But, okay, okay. But even if I'm covering it up, it doesn't matter. <laughs> what does orthodoxy mean to you, Brandon? Ask me. No, uh, no. The whole point about the thrill of it is that you're actually discovering something that you didn't create. Mm -hmm. That you're, you know, it's something that that you didn't make. It's something that you know, if you let it, we'll remake you. You know, the way the Rich Mullen song goes, you know, uh, uh, that it is making me, uh, which is actually riffing off J.K. Chesterton, who's basically, you know, going back to the to the uh, ancient church fathers as he's, as, as he's uh, writing about orthodoxy. So, um, yeah, I, I think every generation needs to be reminded of the importance of sound doctrine. Yeah. Um, I, or another way of, of translating that would be healthy doctrine. Right, so we 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 want the good of the church. We want the church to be in a good place, and doctrine really matters for that. And we've got a lot in our culture today that's either pulling us toward bad doctrine, untruth, falsehood, errors, and heresy. And we have a lot in our culture, honestly, that's not pulling us in that direction specifically, but is pulling us away from caring about doctrine altogether focusing only on what we think is immediately practical or, you know, focusing on only the impact of like of, of, of Christian good deeds in the world, downplaying the 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 importance of belief, what we confess, you know? And so, you know, I, I wanted this to be a book that didn't just make the call, didn't just, you know, cry out for, for the importance of doctrine. Uh, I, I didn't want it to just do that in a way that was like fear-mongering or you know, just really making theological nerds get, you know, all excited that someone else is talking about doctrine, you know, that kind of thing. I wanted <laughs> it to be more about, um, I, I wanted to, to paint a vision for the beauty of it, the beauty of what it is we believe, why it matters, how it affects our lives, how it affects our practice, um, and why we can have confidence in it, that it's enduring, that it's good. Um, so, yeah, I it, it, I mean, I, I want, I think the church today with the cultural winds that are blowing and like all the things that are happening from 
every direction. The church needs a good root system. And this is one of my attempts to saying, hey, we, we've got something really sturdy and foundational here. We, we can go back to this. We can have confidence in it. And we can, we can move forward knowing the, the fundamentals of the faith. Yeah, and so and how you argue for orthodoxy is you talk about creeds, confessions, and then uh, right interpretation of scripture. You know, so we're sort of like you said, we're doing orthodoxy with the church. Uh, one of the ways I think you really a really helpful way of sort of figuring out, you know, somebody's reading this book and saying, okay, orthodoxy. I don't know what that means. What am I supposed to do with it? Why should I like the creeds? You have chapter two. You have this idea of drifting from orthodoxy, and you use the four different characters. And saying, you know, these four people are having a conversation and they're drifting from orthodoxy in different ways. So maybe give a little bit of a preview of that, of these four different ways we can drift. Because I think that is really helpful for thinking through, uh, whether you're a pastor, whether you're even thinking about yourself, of am I getting too caught up in something else that's pulling me away from it? So talk through that a little bit. Yeah, dr- you know, drifting is is dangerous because it's so imperceptible. I mean, you can be drive, you can be drifting and not even know it. Um, I, you know, I use the illustration of when you're out in the the waves in the beach or something and you're 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 playing out in the water and you look back at the shore and and you think someone's moved your stuff but actually it's you who drifted downstream uh mm-hmm. down shore and you didn't even really feel the currents pulling you but they are if you're not so i mean the whole point about the the drifting conversation is that if you're not actively opposing drift you're going to likely drift <laughs> like you have to be recentering yourself constantly in order like realigning yourself with scripture um, in order to 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 stay in the same place, um, yeah, I I just I'm sure there are multiple ways we could drift, but I I wanted to point to the four that I see most prevalent today, and also that I have felt the tug. I have felt each of these drifts in different ways. I mean, one one way you can be susceptible to drift is if you're kind of in a rut spiritually, and everything's just become routine, dry. You're looking for some kind of innovation, some kind of spark, some kind of new, fresh doctrine, or something that would just kind of just get you excited again about spiritual things, you know, like that's, that's one, one way of drifting. That would seem to be a common way that could make us susceptible to drifting from orthodoxy. Um, an, another way I call the pragmatic drift, which is just, you know, it's all about just what's practical. Just tell me, I just got to love God and love people. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I, I don't really need to know what I believe so much or care really about theology. I just need to, 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 to live it out. I just got to live it out. And there's a lot, in in our society, that uh, when it comes to Christianity, there's a lot of uh, uh, that pull toward just whatever is most practical, most pragmatic, immediately. So uh, that fails to take into consideration the way that creeds and deeds go together. Um, and so, you know, just as we we don't want to divorce what we believe from what we do, we don't. We also, on the one side, we we also don't want to just focus on what we do without giving sufficient attention to the one that we believe in. Um, so, so I think that's, that's one way that we can drift, just not caring about theological details. Um, one of the most prominent ways I see these days is people that are, they're just unsettled with the goodness of Christian truth. Like they, they, they still affirm the right doctrines. They just, they're not sure that they're good and beautiful. Hmm. And so they're, they're always just wrestling with you know, the, what, what orthodoxy teaches, what, you know, some of the more unpopular, difficult doctrines of the Christian faith, ethical stances, things like that. And so they're just constantly unsettled. Um, and, and I think that's, it's fine to, to recognize that when we are in that place, but if we, if we get satisfied with that place, that's a, that's a sure sign of, of drifting. And then, and the last one would be one that I don't think most people would think about, but it is possible to drift by being so focused on the great things that the church does that you you move away from the the miracle of conversion of the spirit's work in the human heart of seeing people come to faith you, you could be so focused on making the world a better place through your political action or through your social activism or whatever it might be that just slowly but surely the cross gets pushed from the center and a cause even a righteous cause gets put in its place mm-hmm. and i and then you you begin to assume orthodoxy at that point and that's that's a way that you can drift from orthodoxy over time yeah it's it's that sort of that last thing you're talking about there we see this obviously with with politics and social cultural engagement a lot is orthodoxy starts to become not what the church has believed or even what i was taught to believe but what I now believe, right? It's sort of like you start, uh, like you said, the cross starts getting moved over a little bit and then you start justifying, no, 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 I'm do- this, is, this is me standing up for Christianity. 
But what you're really doing is standing up for whatever cause you care the most about, right? Well, and then Christianity becomes a means to an end yep. rather than yep. the end. I mean, C.S. Lewis in in the Screwtape Letters talks about how easy it is to 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 do a Christianity and you know Christianity mm-hmm. and social work, Christianity and this or that. And he and he says, you know, he says it's very easy to coax a man around that corner, you know, just mm-hmm. because because Christianity does have implications, right? So the like the gospel the gospel really does flesh itself out in all sorts of real world situations and and has an effect on society. So yeah, we should want our Christianity to impact the world. Um, but yeah, I, I think the the challenge there is when Christianity becomes a means to an end rather than the end, that's when you're you're in danger of 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 using orthodoxy yeah. uh for for a different cause rather than being swept up into the kingdom agenda that 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 God Himself gives us. Yeah. You talk about in, in chapter five, the narrowness of heresy, which I thought was really helpful because I think when we think about uh, maybe you're questioning orthodoxy or you're questioning your belief, you've got all this stuff about, you know, whether it's deconstruction or whatever, you know, all these different terms that are being used. And sometimes people see that as there's this blue ocean out here that I'm going to go swim to. And I just got all, I mean, the, there's this massive buffet of things I can now have. And you sort of flip that and say, no, actually, the big, beautiful adventure is orthodoxy and heresy is actually the narrow the narrow thing. So talk through that a little bit. That's yeah, really helpful, I think. yeah. This is a. I mean, readers of Chesterton are going to know that this is one of the key points in orthodoxy. And I just I wanted to make it in a different, make that same point in a different way for for our generation. Um, but yeah, I think heresies and theological errors. I mean, they're just great at marketing. Uh, they they market themselves so well. They market themselves as broad minded, as more inclusive, as expanding the faith and whatnot, when in reality, it's the opposite. They're generally always focusing on an, one of the, it, they're, they're making Christian doctrine an either or rather than a both and. So, yeah. it, so to give an example, you, you know, it, 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 you, could, you could take the inclusivity of Jesus Christ, the call to follow Jesus Christ, which you see all over the pages of the New Testament. It's all over the Gospels where Jesus is eating with all the wrong kinds of people. He's by certainly being extraordinarily inclusive and angering all the religious leaders for being so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got that in the New Testament. That that's a strong impulse, but it is matched by this ferocious insistence on the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. I am the way, then the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. Peter says, "Like I, I mean, it is." clear from like from, from the early church that they saw Jesus as the way, not just my way, your way, a way, the way to God. Um, and so it would be easy, I think, and I think we've seen this happen before. Some, some groups, splinter groups, have so focused on the exclusivity of Christ that they become basically little sects and that they're, they're, they're not connected to that inclusive vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see little cults arise and things like that, you know, like the the twenty people in a in a, in a little house that think they're the only faithful ones and, and whatnot. So yeah. you've got that element of the Christian faith that can lead you astray. And then you've got people today. I think the more common thing is people that take that inclusive vision of 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 the call of Christ to everyone, no matter their ethnicity, background, whatever, to 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 come to the to the table of repentance. Uh, People take that inclusive vision and then they wield it against the exclusivity of Christ. They don't hold it together. And then that becomes in itself, it seems like it's expanding Christianity when it's actually narrowing Christianity because they're taking the inclusivity of that call apart from the exclusivity of Jesus's claim. Mm -hmm. And what I want to say, and what I think actually happens, we see this in history, like just this example. It, It wasn't the exclusivity of the Christians that got the Roman Empire all up in arms, um, and it because there were lots of little weird groups doing their own thing, uh, saying that that you know only they were right. And it wasn't just the it wasn't the inclusivity of Christians that was getting the Roman Empire all upset uh, because they would have been fine if you know the early Christians wanted to add Jesus to the pantheon of deities. You know, just mm-hmm. you know uh, what really got the Romans upset was the fact that there was this group that was holding together the exclusive claim, Jesus Christ is Lord, with the inclusive call, every knee must bow, mm-hmm. every knee inclusively, 
we're we're going out to all nations. We're not just at, you know we're not just the looking for this is not just a sect for the Jewish people or for this ethnicity or that. It's like it's for everybody. You put together the inclusivity of the of the call and the exclusivity of the claim together, and that's the explosion. That's where you mm-hmm. see, and and really, I mean, if you trace it out over time, you see that, and then matched by the the by the by the 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 deeds of the early Christians as they lived out Jesus's vision. I mean, that's the explosion that brings down the Roman religions. Uh, it's 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 phenomenal. But that's the thrill of orthodoxy. And so often, heresies want to narrow and they want to take just one or the other. And mm-hmm. again and again, I'm saying in the book, no, it's both and. It's both and. Yeah, I was thinking too when you were saying that about even intellectual life uh, in the Roman Empire, you have you know, Kelsus, who's writing basically about how Christians are a bunch of, you know, hillbillies, essentially, whatever the Greek word is for hillbilly. Uh, and uh, Origen writes this response to him. And one of the things Origen says is, part of the reason why we know Christianity is true is because it is a, it, as philosophically satisfying and intellectually rigorous as any worldview in the world. And also the poorest illiterate people can believe it too. And I think that's such a good way of thinking about, uh, no, it, it really is for everybody, actually. Yes. And this is one of the reasons why we've got to keep a close connection to the global church and the church yep. throughout history. I mean, that's one of the key points of the book is to say, you know, orthodoxy is what unites us across time and space to all sorts of people. And there, and, and it's all sorts of people. And sometimes orthodoxy even comes back, you know, to, to take on the church. Uh, you know, one of the examples we I, I use in the book just briefly is, you know, the Nestorian controversy where, I mean, you got a bishop that's that's saying something uh, untrue about Jesus because of the title of Mary that's given. Um, and and it was the, it was really as much of a, it wasn't just other bishops that opposed him. It was also the the uprising of the faithful, of the illiterate shepherds and others that were that 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 recognized instinctively, something terribly off there uh, to where the, the bishop can be corrected by the shepherd in, in that case. So it's just, it's a beautiful thing to look at the, the breadth and depth of, of Orthodox Christianity and, and what it means to, to confess Jesus as Lord. Yeah. And thinking about that, you know, I was teaching on the councils, you know, last couple of weeks in church history. And one of the things I remind the students of is how Orthodoxy survives all these various factors. I mean, another factor is you have Roman emperors who are often not actually in agreement with the Orthodox position. Uh, Constantine, for example, you know, oh yeah, there's a little bit of a, a little bit of exaggeration probably of him sort of convening a council, but certainly he supported it. He paid for it, some of those kind of things, and he gets in, ends up being baptized by Eusebius, who is sort of Arius's biggest defender at the Council of Nicaea. That's who baptizes him at the end, and he keeps trying to get Arius reinstated in the church, and Athanasius is like, nah, man, like, we, we, he's, he's a heretic, <laughs> we're not taking him. Uh, and you see well, this his, happen his son is the same way. Constantius, Constantius right? is yep. more of a, of a, of an Arian than, than Constantine, really, as far as openly siding with one side or another. Yeah. It's completely opposite of the whole Dan Brown, the Vinci Code yep. idea that, you know, that the emperor that came and made everything this way and declared Jesus this way. Like, you actually get to the history of it, and you're like, no, it was way more complicated than that. Yeah. And 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 the orthodoxy did not seem like it would. There were times when it did not look like orthodoxy would win. Yeah. Um, now I don't think that's being ex- exiled multiple times by Constantine's sons. You know, I mean, it's right. Ari- Arians and others being put in major positions of power, and somehow orthodoxy still made its way through. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think that there was ever a majority of bishops at the time, uh, and I don't think the majority of Christians actually ever sided with Arius. So I, do, I don't yeah. think that orthodoxy was ever in the minority there. But, um, but in terms of power and prestige and influence, yeah, uh, there were significant challenges. And I, you know, that's the quintessential heresy that, like the the one we go back to, and of course, the Nicene Creed is is so foundational as a as a summary and explanation of of um, what Scripture teaches, but. There, there are great examples like that all throughout history where where we see orthodoxy and heresy, and the more you study it, the more you realize all the excitement and adventure is where orthodoxy is. It's not edgy to be a heretic. It's boring because <laughs> <Right. laughs> it's already been tried most of the time, you know. Yeah. And it's and it's and it's a narrowing and a splintering off of 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 the beauty of of, of Christian teaching. Yeah. So as we think about, you've got this new podcast, reconstructing faith. Um, listen to your podcast, your episode, uh, third episode this morning. 
uh, with Chris Martin, a good friend of ours, a uh, mutual friend of ours, and, and several others. But I think there's a good connection between what you're doing there and what you're doing in the book because, you know, for all of my personal love for church history and concern for the Trinity and all these kind of things, um, you know, part of what sparked my interest in these things is my own sort of journey of recognizing the beauty of theologically, reading the Bible theologically, the beauty of the church and, and the history of the church. And I feel like, you know, when I'm even teaching students here, I teach on the church fathers in our theology one and two classes, which are basically our gen ed theology courses that anybody, uh, everybody has to take. So I've got pharmacy majors, engineering majors, and we talk through Athanasius. We talk through uh, Cyril of Alexandria. We talk through these, and I'm sure there's a handful of them that are, you know, tolerating it at best. But uh, for the most part, they are really engaged in discussion. They often, you know, leave comments and evaluation saying how much they appreciate church history and how much they understand what they believe now because they interacted with the with the early church, which is great for me because I just punt to Athanasius and say, he's a better theologian than me anyway. So uh, once you read him. Uh, well, we're but, all indebted to him at this point. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I always tell them that any, uh, all theology of the incarnation is essentially a footnote to Athanasius. So, um, but I keep thinking about the way that our culture is going. You know, I'm not as as afraid of you know, Babylon, as some people are per se. But there is something going on here where I'm thinking about all these college students coming through and all these lay people in our churches and thinking, how do we encourage them not to, quote unquote, deconstruct, which means 20 different things to 20 different people? Um, you know, how to encourage them to seek out what they believe, to, to make their faith, quote unquote, their own uh, in the sense of they're not just believing it because their parents told them to, but because they actually believe it um, and not sort of run off to whatever feels most comfortable or, or most easy. So how are you thinking through the relationship between orthodoxy and faithfulness to the Bible, the quote unquote deconstruction conversation? And then you're obviously sort of playing on that with your reconstructing the faith. So I guess that intersection of orthodox theology and culture not being so friendly toward orthodox theology, how are you thinking through the things that we need to do to help prepare pastors and lay people for, for the next, let's say, 50 years? Well, it's kind of a perfect storm right now because, I mean, not only are the, the, the cultural currents pretty strong, but also there's been a, an apocalyptic humiliation of the church in a yeah. number of different areas where there has been sin, selfishness, corruption, injustice exposed at so many levels. And so the church has lost a lot of credibility, even among church members, um, as to whether or not, you know, this Christianity is all it's cracked up to be. That's the, that's, that's the mindset of, among many. Um, I, you know, the deconstruction conversation is really, is really interesting. And there are all sorts of reasons why I, I just, I think it's, I find that I'm much better off talking to people one-on-one -on -one and, and learning like what are the, the, the various things that are pushing them in a, in a particular direction or why they're wrestling, what they're wrestling with, rather than assuming that, you know, everyone who's really about deconstruction is really just because they want this, or they want a comfortable Christian life, or they don't want that, you know. Yeah. I, I just, I find that to be a, a really simplistic and a reductionist way of looking at it, and I don't think it actually does justice to the stories of actual people. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't, I, I don't want to speak with a, I don't want to paint with a broad brush the, those who say they're in some kind of a deconstruction process or a deconversion. Uh, in fact, what what I what I'm hoping to do with the podcast though is to say, um, hey, you know what the the church is going to be here in a hundred years. Um, what's that church going to look like? Yeah. And those of us who remain who are not deconstructing, we got to reconstruct. At this point, we 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 there's some rebuilding to do, and I don't I think when when people come with particular you know, they've, maybe they've been, uh, they've experienced abuse in the church or they've experienced um, the church at its worst. I, I don't think that we win by telling them the rot smells good. <laughs> right. I don't think that actually is effective. I think we got to say, yep, yeah, yep, that that room is rotted. Man, there is some mold in there. Mm -hmm. And I th I think what um, what we, we got to do is similar to um, one of the examples I use in episode two of the podcast which, by the way, I mean, that, just to tell listeners, like the podcast is documentary style, so it's a little different than than other podcasts, but hopefully, you know, well produced and compelling, it, just from the the different people we've got on there and stuff. But uh, we we talk about the Nashville flood that that happened, and and the example of um, of mudding out houses, gutting houses, 
I was involved in that process. And it really is striking what you got to do after a flood. I mean, you really do have to take the house down to the studs, um, basically. But you you do that in a way that is, you're, you fortify the foundation and you remove all the rot. And I think, quite frankly, conservative types, in order to protect the institution, often wind up defending rot. They defend the indefensible. And I think progressive types, out of a, a a good intention to purge the institution, often blow up foundational pillars. Yeah, they're just like tear it all down. I I think the task of our generation is is going to we got to roll up our sleeves, we got to get to the reconstruction work. We're going to need to do both of those things at the same time: remove the rot and fortify the foundations. And I think the only way we do that is by recognizing the difference between rot and foundational pillars, mm-hmm. and the need that in order to do that, we need our Bibles open before us the ancient church looking over us and our uh, the global church the church the, the worldwide church around us speaking into what this looks like i think that's how we can differentiate between rot and pillars and that's how we can make sure that in our work of reconstruction we're not you know taking a sledgehammer to a load bearing wall or something to that effect right yeah with something yeah or just moving to another country altogether <laughs> just yeah. just getting out of there you know stay stay home rebuild um, yeah i mean the lord i think this is the task we're called to you know it's but it's going to be hard it's going to be really yeah. hard yeah well and i think you know you you keep posing it in the podcast too as a credibility crisis which you know Look, there are multiple factors, I think, that play into much of the deconstruction conversation. Some of it, like you said, I think we need to be sympathetic toward people who you keep saying, trust the church, trust the church, and they've never been able to. I mean, like really legitimately, personally not been able to. Um, you know, if you're if you're a pastor, if you've ever been a pastor worth your salt for any amount of time, you would think there'd be a level of pastoral love and concern for people who feel that way, right? Um, we also have, you know, the Lifeway and Ligonier state of theology that comes out every two years. And there's a lot of hand wringing over, you know, functional areas in the church and, and whatever right. else. And I, and I use it as an example in class of why we should care about theology. But all those factors, I think, are there's a lot of theological crisis that's happening that's obvious. But I think you bringing up the credibility crisis, whether we like it or not, at least in our kind of immediate evangelical circles, that seems to be a much bigger problem to me because most people I know who have walked away from orthodoxy or at least just don't care about theology anymore or doctrine because they think it's all sort of a power play. It's not because they decided the Trinity is not biblical. It's because they've been hurt by somebody who teaches on the Trinity, right? Or they feel like um, this church I was a part of or this group, I can't trust them. So why should I trust them on anything? So we've got to try to rebuild. I think your, your idea of rebuilding credibility to me is the core that sort of flows into everything else. Well, I think some people hear that though, there are probably a few people listening that hear us talking about credibility and they're like, what credibility? Like what credibility with the world? The world's never going to accept us, you know, and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I, I get that. And there is a way of pursuing a certain kind of credibility that actually would, would shave off the offensive aspects of the gospel. Um, I'm not talking about popularity. I'm talking about the credibility of us living consistently according to our confession. Yeah, what we say we believe, our witness. Yeah. Does our witness actually back up our words? Because quite frankly, the Bible tells us we have to care about that. I mean, Peter's really clear that we our conduct should be in such a way that people on the outside see us. Paul talks about that. Jesus talks about this. I mean, this is letting our light shine before others so that people will give glory to God. It, this is a it's 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 a vitally important part of our Christian witness. It's why Leslie Newbigin talks about the church being the hermeneutic of the gospel. Uh, the 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 way that we show the gospel's truth is not simply through our declarations, but through our display of of being a community that actually lives according to this. So, so yeah, I think we've got to care about the credibility because we care about Christ, and um, we we want people to see Him and His Majesty. And if the church is not doing a good job representing Jesus in all of His glory, then. And yeah, that we've got work to do. And and I and I'm not saying that to dump on other generations or you know, to, I, I this is this is a, comes from the heart. It should come from the heart, not because we love, not because we 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 want to be found, we, we want the world to be fond of us, but because we want the world to be fond of Jesus, mm-hmm. to love Jesus. And if they're going to reject Jesus, which many will, Jesus himself tells us that. Let's make sure they're actually rejecting the best display of Jesus that the church could possibly give. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about this in debates and everything else, right? Give the give the best argument you can for something. 
And then when it comes to, you know, people kind of poking our Christianity or our, or whatever, it's like, oh, well, well, the world doesn't, the world can, uh, is going to hate us. So we'll just keep going. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. or we actually could, like you mentioned the early church, make it a compelling argument. I mean, Justin and Tertullian and Irenaeus, if you're reading them, they're writing to the emperor and making a compelling case for why Christianity should be tolerated. You know, uh, our morality uh, is is upstanding. We're the most upstanding of citizens. Um, you know, we're consistent theologically in what we believe. Uh, you know, these kind of things, the early church didn't see this distinction between doctrine and, and the way to live. And I know we say that a lot, but I think sometimes we forget that uh, either because we are uh, defending the doctrine at the expense of morality. So we're sort of willing to let a lot of things go as long as you conf- affirm the right doctrine uh, or the people who leave because they basically say, I'm just going to, I'm, you know, I don't like the way that they live. So I'm rejecting everything. And, and, you know, you're, you're kind of called to have those two things together, I think is like what the church has been doing for 2000 years. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you can't read the church fathers and not see them constantly telling when they're making an apologetic they are yes they're talking about an apologetic for their beliefs but they're they're very much pointing to the behavior of the christians of the time um and so no i love what john dixon says he's i i've had him on i've got him in a in a few of the episodes um he's you know australian church leader theologian yeah. historian um you know i asked him like what so when things are really dark what you know but what 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 usually happens, God raises up someone, you know, or raises up different people who have a heart to see renewal in the church or reformation of some sort. What what happens? And John, John's answer is pretty simple. It's just, well, people go back to the Gospels. God gives them eyes to read them afresh, and they look around, and they look at the rest of the other believers, and they're like— Hey, you know what? We don't look like this. <laughs> like this isn't this isn't and and then and God uses that to stir up those embers and to 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 want to be a a stronger reflection of the uh, of the beauty and majesty of Jesus to to sing the melody of the gospel better, you know. Yeah. Um Ignatius says um in your in your love talking to the congregation, Jesus Christ is sung. Mm-hmm. It's like a song that's sung. So I you know, if we if if we're really off key, well then let's let's rediscover the melody and 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 sing sing well. Yeah. So as we're thinking through, obviously we have these continual conversations, which have always been happening, of how to vote, who to vote for, what to prioritize, how to think about it. Obviously, with a culture that seems to be falling apart and moving away from Christian values in some really obvious ways, I think we can all agree. And I think you could say that both parties have their versions of, of drifting, right? Um, how are you starting to, to think about and encourage people? I had students asking me the other day as an example of about voting and, and political. You know, I talked about some false gospels. And one of them I said is the political gospel, the sort of uh, viewing your, your party politics as the gospel. And I tell them very clearly, I don't think, uh, my personal opinion is I don't think a pastor or a person in spiritual leadership should tell people I should be should be up on a stage telling people how to vote and who to vote for, because I think you can bind consciences and, and do a lot of things I think are inappropriate. But I said, here's one thing I will say. As somebody who's 37, uh, in the 90s, Bill Clinton was was basically the president, the first president I remember. And, you know, he would be, you know, a moderate, a center right conservative now compared to what the left is now, what Democrats are now. Uh, or somebody like George Bush sometimes feels almost like he's center left compared to what the right is now. And I said, you know, one of the hardest things for me is thinking about, it, it doesn't seem as, as simple as it used to be about sort of which party to vote for. And, you know, these people can have a reasonable debate about a handful of topics. It feels like everybody's running to the fringes. And what that ends up happening is making everybody, I think, a little afraid about what to do. You know, should we, you know, you've got the Christian nationalism conversation, you've got the sort of completely opposite discussion that's going on. So I, I'm, I'm kind of asking this, uh, you know, just to hear your thoughts for myself too, because I feel like it's becoming harder and harder for me to think about and to figure out what to do when I vote, not necessarily even parties, but like, do you vote third party? Do you abstain? When is it appropriate to do that? So how are you thinking about all that in sort of maintaining Christian conviction and really caring about how we live in the world and how we vote and those kind of things and uh, not getting dismayed or running to the extremes because things are just really bad? Yeah, that makes sense. That was a long yeah. winding question, but no, I, I mean, I think a lot of people are right where you're talking about. They're they're trying to figure out how to, you know, how to how to be faithful in this moment. Um, 
you know, I, I think it's, it's vitally important that we stand out from the world. And you don't stand out from the world just by the nature of the positions you take, but also the posture with which you hold those positions. So I would simply, I, I would want to start off by saying um, a, lo- a lot of the trends are really negative right now in showing that political identity is becoming something of a pseudo-religion. Yeah. For people, you see this with the sort of a lot on the anti-racist side of things, the 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 social activism around around race and uh, gender and sexuality and whatnot. So there's a, and there's a religious fervor around the kind of the the cult of intersectionality and um, they, there's a, a a you know I mean uh, this is why you've got people being called out, you know, or canceled or heretics burned at the stake, figuratively, thankfully only, but, uh, you know, uh, social media mobs getting the pitchforks ready and stuff. So you've got that happening. You've got um, on the right, the same. Uh, We are, we're moving into a post-religious right moment when there are a lot of people that have a tenuous connection to Christianity based on cultural trappings of the past or because Christianity is is connected to, again, it's a means to an end that they want to see happen culturally, whether or not they're actually church-going or anything like that. You're, you're seeing that happen. And so religion is becoming, uh, politics is becoming a religion for people. Yeah. And so one of the ways that Christians, uh, I think, in order to be faithful, we've got to stand out, is we have to make sure we relativize politics. That we demote it, that it does not have the. It's not the most. We don't see politics as the most important sphere for for Christian witness and engagement. It is one sphere. It's an important sphere. It's a way that we love our neighbors. We want to push for policies that are going to be for flourishing. Um, we we should want to be salt and light. So it's an area that we have to engage in. It's just very easy world just because of the nature of of, of the world right now for us to assume that political engagement is where. Um, it is the most important thing that 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 what what happens in Washington D.C. is more important than what happens in thousands of churches across the country every Sunday, mm-hmm, right. and it's not. It's not. And if we don't have that eternal perspective, then we will get caught up in the in in the temporal, and we'll get swallowed up by the temporal. So, uh, on the one hand, I think I think it's Oliver O'Donovan who says, you know, sometimes the best political prophetic critique you can have is just to talk about something else, <laughs> um, to to not give. The, the 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 gods of politics the demanding attention that they that they want and that they ask of you all the time so so I do think relativizing is one is one thing we've got to do frankly Brandon I mean it's kind of depressing to look though I, I mean if you look at the stats um I you know I'm reading Ryan Burge's new book um shows a lot of stats going on and in, in with, with the rise of the unaffiliated in in um in in North America right now um right now our not only are our political parties being divided up in certain ways, but more and more, those who are religiously active are voting Republican, and those that are religiously unaffiliated are voting Democrat. It, to where we're almost we're we're kind of we're beginning to move into a situation where um, there's a religious way to vote and a non-religious way to vote. Mm-hmm. The exception being Black Protestants. Who, yeah. for all sorts of historical reasons and and and, and um, um, cultural things we could point to, have traditionally voted um, Democrat, but they're they're a sliver of the of the of the percentage of the nation as a whole. So that this is that's a that's a really big challenge. The easy answer would be to say, well, if the religiously if those who care about religion and traditional values and morals and whatnot are voting Republican, there's your answer, which that may be the answer. Voting-wise, for the time being, uh, for those who, you know, believe it is immoral to vote for a a party whose platform is so egregiously um, uh, anti-biblical when it comes to the the nature of humanity, the human person, prenatally, sexuality, gender, all those kinds of things, Um, that may be the answer. But that in itself is 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 an if it is the answer brings. 15 other challenges that we only are beginning to scratch the surface of right. Pri- primarily the the question of okay if if that's the religious way then by default christianity is now being identified with this particular party and a platform that in its own way in its own politicians do not actually model or display in many ways the 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 the, the um the beauty of christian faith so mm. 
so then you've got another you've got another problem altogether is that you've got the conflation of religious identity with politics in a way that actually makes it difficult for Christians to untangle that and then and to love well across the 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 political aisle to love neighbors well who are you know even to love your enemy to love your opponent um we, we, you, you start talking about loving your your enemy who's who's got completely ideologically different views than you and and people think you're a squish you know that you you start warning about contempt for the other in your church and people think well you must think they're okay you know that yeah. you're like you know and so it, it's a it's a big challenge i i mean i don't feel like i'm rambling now but but <laughs> i mean you you rambled in your question so i rambled in my answer but those That's are just right. some things top of mind that 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 i'm i'm wrestling with myself well, it, it breeds rambling because, uh, like you said, there's uh, once you think you've come to a solution, it creates more problems. You know, yes. and it's sort of I did that in class. You know, it was I have uh, here's five false gospels, and we spent half the class on that one. You right. know, because it just it, it raises so many questions. And um, so, if you're thinking through, let's kind of end on this. If you're you've been a pastor, um, you're now a vice president at North American Mission Board, so you are. I mean, you're literally, your, your job title says that you are resourcing, you know, uh, pastors and church planters and things like that. So what are a handful of things that you advice that you would give from either your own pastoral ministry or what you're seeing uh, in your own work and your own research? What are a couple of tips you would give to pastors to say, here's some really good ways in our moment. And I guess we could just say maybe Western, you know, this is, it could be different in other cultures and contexts, but kind of where we're at right now, some ways that they could continue to display the beauty of orthodoxy, both in their teaching and their living, and ways to help people think through how to engage the culture in light of that. Yeah. Um, man, that's a, we could talk for a while about different ways that that could, that could be. Um, I mean, just practically, I would, I'd tell pastors and church leaders, hey, if you feel like the world is shaking pretty strongly right now and the wind's blowing pretty hard, uh, both because of problems in the church and at, you know, outside the church, pressures outside the church, Now's the time to make sure your dig your those roots are dug deep. So, read some old books. Get get into like go go deeper than this per, particular moment. Read great biographies of people that were trying to be faithful in very different times and see all of their flaws and foibles and problems and sins and all of that. Um, recognize that those are all there, but um, um, you know, but but really, but learn from history. Uh, root yourself in in history. So I I'd say that An, another thing I'd say um, to to pastors and preachers in particular. This is something I've tried to do. Uh, I, I was teaching pastor, primary teaching pastor in my church for uh, a few years, uh, just a few years ago. I, I wanted to constantly be referring to, uh, in occasionally quoting just amazing solid quotes from from church fathers. Uh, and I would say, you know, here's here's what Augustine said 1,600 years ago. I'd even put the the date because I'd want I want the church to know we're not the first people to be doing an exposition of this passage of scripture. You know, yeah. like this goes way back. You know, or and 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 introducing them to some of those stalwarts of the faith, so that when we have conversations about orthodoxy and um, uh, theology, there's there's the, the, they're already primed to to recognize we're we're part of a faith that transcends it didn't it didn't start 50 years ago when our church was planted or you know or when our denomination showed up or whatever like we're connected to roots that go way 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 back um and then um i i'd also encourage pastors just right now get make sure you've got some some other pastor friends who uh can tell you you're not crazy and that 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 things um, are that are experiencing some of the same tumultuous times that you are, mm -hmm. and that are able to um, to give you encouragement and to help you to stay the course and to do because uh, being a faithful pastor these days is going to cost something. Yeah. It, it's going to cost something, it, 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 because a lot, a lot right now there are a lot of itching ears for a lot of different things uh, politically, both on the right and the left, and a pastor who's willing to to poke at the idols of their particular congregation, not just the congregation across the street. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're going to, I mean, there's a cost to it. There's a cost to it. So um, you, you got, you got to have other people that, that are, are holding you accountable, but also are there to encourage and, and, and inspire you. Um, I think, I think those, I think that's vital uh, for, 
you know, for and then and then also just being connected mission wise to the church around the world. I, I don't think there's ever been a time when international mission trips um, are not are more important. I, they're, they're definitely important for the people that we serve when we go to other parts of the world, but it's just as important uh, for pastors in North America to have a global perspective and a vision to where they can kind of get outside of the, the the craziness of their own moment and and be connected to brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who have the same confession, believe in the same Jesus you know, and, and in wildly different cultural settings still proclaim him as Lord. Yeah. I was thinking of uh, one historical and one modern example, you know, you brought up Augustine, uh, Augustine is pastoring while Rome is literally burning. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the Visigoths have taken over, the pagans have come into the temple literally and figuratively, and you know, the city's on fire and you have all these ref- basically refugees coming from there into North Africa, into his church and to watch and to read, you know, him, sort of standing on the faith in the midst of something like that, where literally you go from, we are a Christian nation. We, we, you know, we, you have to be, a, you basically have to confess Christianity to, to get along here to saying, Oh, you know what? Maybe this world is not, uh, not our hope. And of course there's a, a lot of stuff that comes from that in his theology, I think too, but you know, watching somebody like that saying, okay, yeah, we probably need to take our hands off the world a little bit. We probably need to think a little bit more deeply um, is an encouragement, I think, for us right now, because you you could say, depending on who you are, and, and you could say this about both sides of the aisle in some sense, uh, the Visigoths have come and the pagans are taking over the temple. And what are we going to do? Let's stand on the faith that was once delivered. Um, but even you talk about globally, too. I always remind my students, you know, that the church is right now growing and often grows when persecution and hardship are at their height, you know. So, if you're feeling, it doesn't mean you have to go, uh, I always tell them, this doesn't mean you have to be miserable and suffer to be a faithful Christian, but it's a reminder that uh, the church does pretty well in suffering and persecution. Yeah. That doesn't mean we pray for it or we hope that it happens or we, we want people to start being beheaded in the streets so the church can can do its thing. But um, yeah, you've got a 1,600-year-old example, example in one right now of how to stand faithful you know, and, wa- and watch God work in the middle of that, which I think is an encouragement for all of us. So. Yeah, no, totally, totally right. I, I think those examples we're going to need more of in the in the future if we're going to yeah. be inspired to to stand firm. Yeah, well, in, in a loving and uh, I don't want to say the word winsome because it's a it's a it's a naughty word now. Uh, it's been co opted all all over the place. But uh, in a loving and biblically faithful way, we need to be that example in our own churches and our yeah. own institutions. I think so. All right, Trevin. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. I know it's only taken me uh, three years to invite you on. And I know you've just been you've been pining to be on Church Grammar, and you've been so sad about it. So I'm just oh, I'm just you've happy had finally... so many but better guests. <laughs> That's why. I mean, you you're finally getting down to to, to the rest <laughs> of us here. So yeah, well, yeah. you know, it, it takes a little while, but eventually I come around. So, <laughs> but but thanks for yeah. doing it. I appreciate it, friend. Thanks for having me on.